0: Things have really changed since the Berlin Wall came down and Germany was reunited. But travel writer Neil Taylor still can't get over the thrill of visiting once-forbidden places like the palace at Potsdam.
1: I remember in the 1960s, the 1970s, 1980s, thinking you had to be a spy to cross the Glinica Bridge. Now you can walk across it, take a local bus across it. So quite often now, I just do it. I don't have to, but just to tell myself that it really
0: is true. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today's Potsdam is an easy side trip from nearby Berlin. We'll discover what the former home of Prussian kings has to offer in the hour ahead. And a Greek tour guide takes us around another city that's become more accessible to visitors lately, Athens. But for the Greeks, there's one thing still missing, and you'll find it at the British Museum.
2: We like not to call them the Algin Marbles in favor of the thief, if I may say so. We like to call them the Parthenon Marbles.
0: Potsdam, Athens, and your favorite cities. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A serious investment in public infrastructure has turned busy, grimy Athens into more of a tourist-friendly destination. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, a Greek guide tells us what's new in Athens and what's new about what's old in the home of the Greek Golden Age. And we'll open the phones later in the hour to hear from you, our listeners, about your favorite cities. Let's start with a return visit from London-based travel writer Neil Taylor. He writes a guidebook to Potsdam, a very short hop from Berlin. He reminds us that the home of the King of Prussia is a city whose architectural treasures fared the world wars a lot better than most. Neil, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Rick. You know, a lot of Americans, when we go to Germany, we don't realize that in 1850, there was no Germany.
1: Yes, that's quite right. There were lots of what are now provinces, Bavaria, Prussia, all these were independent administrations, perhaps a little bit like the U.S. before it all got together at the late 18th century.
0: Now, now when we think in our travels, you know, France, it has Versailles, the palace of France. But in Germany, it's a little confusing because, of course, Munich would have its uh, Nymphenburg or its residence, Würzburg has the residence, and Berlin has a great national palace, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it has a royal palace that's being rebuilt now. And, of course, subsidiary palaces, because there were many members of the royal family,
0: each of who wanted their own palace. So when we go to Berlin, we're looking at palaces of the royal family of Prussia.
1: That's right, yes. That was Prussia. And, of course, Bavaria is now South Germany.
0: I've always had a hard time getting my brain around Potsdam, because I know it's really important in German history, and it's a great sightseeing attraction. And I know that you're enthusiastic about Potsdam. How how can we appreciate Potsdam in our travels?
1: Yes, I am, because it offers so much, and it's really an international city now, because different people settled there and left an architectural legacy. So there's a Russian quarter there, there's a Dutch quarter there, and, of course, the German royal family was so close to France at many stages of its life that you could say there are even French quarters there. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, talked a lot to Frederick the Great, who had his palace in Potsdam. So there's a 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and 20th century Potsdam. Tremendous variety.
0: So this was really the international diplomatic community for the Prussian Empire, is that right?
1: Very much so, yes. And several of the Prussian emperors used both Potsdam and Berlin. Potsdam was sometimes a summer capital, sometimes a year-round capital. But the architectural legacy that they bequeathed is extraordinary in its diversity. So you can wander in gardens, even Chinese gardens and tea houses, through architecture of every century, including the 20th.
0: Neil, when we're going to Berlin, tell us just the nitty-gritty about how to get out to Potsdam and check this place out.
1: Um, You can go on the railway. That's probably the easiest. They call it the S-Bahn, which is the sort of railway that's largely overground there. And you can get there in half an hour. Um, coach tours and so on go there but it's an easy place to explore on your own so just take the train get a day ticket and that takes you on buses and trams all around the sites that you need to visit
0: it used to be far from san Susi, and no worries because you had to have a reservation in advance and that used to be very frustrating for for tourists is there still those sort of hoops you got to go through or can you just go out and buy a ticket
1: well, just go out and buy a ticket now because Germany is one. As you say, in the old days when it was in East Germany, you had to be a spy to get in and out <laughs> of Potsdam directly and be swapped on the Glinica Bridge. So Whoa. Gary Powers was swapped there and other U.S. Were they spies? Were they not spies? I don't know, but that's what they were called anyway. And they were always exchanged on the Glinica Bridge, which linked West Berlin with Potsdam. Wow. But you had to be a spy to cross the Glinica Bridge. Now you can walk across it, take a local bus across it, not actually take a train across it. The Mm -hmm. train takes a different route, but... It's a very pleasant suburb, in a sense, I think the Berliners would call it. I would call it a totally separate city and worth staying in. You don't want to treat hmm. it as a half-day trip. You do actually want to stay in the town.
0: Now, that gives a whole different dimension to it, because I just thought of it as a side trip from Berlin to see the palace, but you've got the remnants of those diplomatic quarters that actually are worth checking out.
1: Well, there's so much that you want to check out. I mean, you want to see now the spy museum by the Glinica Bridge, which... Hmm tells the story of each swap. Um, you want to see the KGB area, I'm afraid. They kept a large area to themselves. Who knows? Perhaps Putin, who worked for the KGB in the old East Germany, perhaps he was there for a while before he became a Russian president. Uh, you want to see the Imperial Russian areas, the Dutch area, because there was Dutch affinities with huh. the Germany. So, so many different things from different centuries, and that does mean staying there for two or three days, not just coming out for half a day and seeing Frederick the Great's
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Neil Taylor about Potsdam, which is just a half an hour outside of Berlin, and Neil writes the Footprints Guide to Berlin, which includes Potsdam. Neil, apparently then you've got a new museum that reveals some of the tales of the dark days under Nazi and communist rule.
1: Yes, you have, because the prison, which, first of all, the Nazis used, then the Russian occupation authorities used, then the Stasi, the notorious East German police used it, and this prison museum details the whole history from the 1930s until 1990, when, of course, it was closed immediately.
0: Fascinating. I bet that's a powerful museum.
1: It is, yes. Because a lot of the people who will show you around were victims there, because, of course, it was a political prison through the 70s and 80s, and very sadly, of course, imprisoned a lot of people. Fortunately, they came out of it, and they are still able to guide you around. But it's particularly moving that, of course, people who were forced to be there for many years for political crimes, no genuine criminal
0: activity, and they are showing you around now. My feeling is there's more nostalgia meaning a nostalgia for the old Eastern ways, in Eastern Germany than in Western Germany. Is that your experience? Oh, in the smaller towns, yes. I
1: think people living in the rural areas were not so affected by what they thought might be happening in the West. There wasn't the lure of West Berlin. I remember traveling in East Berlin in the old days, and of course, one could see the new tower blocks going up in the West, and they heard all the Mm. radio broadcasts and television broadcasts and things like that. And You were pretty aware of what was going on a few hundred yards away and which you might never see in your lifetime was if you were in a smaller agricultural community you lived as your parents and your grandparents had lived and you didn't feel so distressed that you couldn't experience other forms of life
0: yeah my friends in those small rural communities during the communist time said the musicians change, but the music stays the same. Yes, that's it.
1: right. Yeah. And it did through many generations.
0: Yeah, And have could
1: have suffered less in the Nazi era because there were not large Jewish communities in the countryside, mm-hmm. and then less in the communist era. That That's very true.
0: That would have been a big factor is just if you lived in a village that had no Jewish community, you wouldn't see the horrors as apparent. No, no. If you're planning a trip to the Berlin area, the big choice from a sightseeing point of view is Charlottenburg Palace in Berlin or the palace out at Potsdam. If you had to choose one or the other, which would you go for and why?
1: I would choose definitely the Potsdam one because of all the gardens there and the environment. The environment in Charlottenburg is not as exciting as the environment in Potsdam. In Potsdam, you can go in and out. So, of course, if the weather's uncertain, it doesn't matter. Whereas in the Charlottenburg area, you were just inside a palace... Which has a variety of exhibitions, but not the weird architecture that we were saying earlier Frederick the Great right. introduced to Potsdam and not the gardens for wandering.
0: And if you get that whole garden dimension of Potsdam, can't you go out there by boat and, and be with Germans? I guess you can a... do that
1: as well. I should mention that earlier. Yes, very much. You beautiful boat. Berlin ride. By boat, you can take boats locally. I would suggest always staying there and then taking a boat trip at sunset. God, that That's the beautiful. best time to see Potsdam from the river. And from the lakes, so spend a couple of days there, but allow a couple of hours in the early evening
0: to see it from the water.
3: To unter den Eichen.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Neil Taylor, and Neil writes the Footprints Guide to Berlin. And Neil, let's talk about Berlin just for a second, because last time I was there. I was so impressed by the new cityscape along the Spree River. I remember the city used to turn its back on the Spree. Of course, it defined a lot of the wall where people couldn't go across it or swim under it because that was uh, no man's land. Today, little cruise boats go up and down the river. It's just a festival of happy new urban life.
1: And you see political Germany there, don't you, that the Reichstag, the parliament, has been rebuilt along the river and both sides are completely integrated that some of the accommodation belonging to the members of parliament, cross the river, cross the old border several times a day. The Reichstag, the parliamentary building, is just in what was West Berlin. These buildings, the ancillary buildings, are just in what was East Berlin. And to me, that's very symbolic, that they crisscross, crisscross, and nobody knows, nobody cares anymore. And that is the heart of Germany crossing the border.
0: I would imagine that was all planned in, as, as Berlin has mended itself back together in such a brilliant way. You know, in the old days, you had... All of the museums split east and west, and suddenly you have a chance to knit those cultural treasures back together again. And, of course, the center of Berlin uh, doesn't have that gashing wall anymore. It's got brand-new buildings. Are people looking from the countryside of Germany at this lavish architecture? I've heard them call it pharaonic, almost like the pharaohs in scale. Is there a, a public image issue there?
1: I would have thought it's worthwhile. You can justify it on commercial grounds because Berlin is such a popular tourist destination now. So every foreigner coming pays sales tax on each cup of coffee they enjoy, probably on every bus fare, certainly on their hotel expenses and so on. So with these numbers coming in to appreciate all these arts, to appreciate the buildings and so on, it is a sensible commercial decision to bring Berlin back to its architectural glory of
0: the 1920s. One of my favorite moments last summer was just sitting in the sun on the banks of the Spree River, right next to the uh, new National Library, I believe, looking over at, what is it, the big chancellor's house and the, uh, what's the word on top of the uh, the Reichstag building? The Reichstag,
1: dem Deutschen Volk, yes, dedicated to the German people, yes.
0: And I just felt happy for Germany to have a grand capital all back together again.
1: Yes, it is wonderful, and I find I to and fro, still 20 years on, on the s bahn the Overground Railway or the Underground Railway, I remember in the 1960s, the 1970s, 1980s, thinking, well, will I ever be able to to and fro here? It seems very unlikely. So quite often now, I just do it. I don't have to, but just to tell myself that it really is true. I'm the same way. And simply with the Brandenburg Gate, of course, wandering in and out around the Brandenburg Gate. Did we ever think, when Reagan made his speech about tear that wall down, Mr. Gorbachev, that that would be happening three years later?
0: And to and fro, the German people can do, and, and we can do it with them. <laughs> Neil Taylor, author of The Footprints Guide to Berlin, thanks a lot for an insight into Berlin and a side trip out to that great palace at Potsdam.
1: Very nice to be with you, Rick. Thank you.
4: So zogen sie durch Potsdam Für den Mann am Da kam die grüne Polizei und haute sie zusammen.
0: Our next stop is Athens, where Greek guide Anastasia Gaetano will show us the way. She takes your calls at 877 333 Rick. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. I was just in Athens, and for the first time in my life, I was charmed by the place. For years, I've been saying, you know, Athens, you got to see the big museums, give it two days, and get out of there and go to the Peloponnesian Peninsula out to the islands. But now, Athens has personality. It's user-friendly. It's got pedestrian zones. There's a sort of a pride in Athens, and I want to talk about that today. I'm joined by Anastasia Gaetano. She's a guide from Greece. She leads tours all around Greece and lots in Athens, and we're going to talk about Athens. Anastasia, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. You know, Anastasia, on my last visit, I was so favorably impressed by Athens. You've spent all your life visiting Athens. What is your take on this city? How is it doing?
2: Well, the city has changed a lot, and um, a lot of things have gotten better, like traffic jam. Of course, there is one, but it's a lot better since we do have a subway, a metro, thank God, and we do have a lot of pedestrian walks now in the center and a lot of new museums and Uh, archaeological sites that have been renovated and a lot of uh, monuments that have been restored, a lot of new shopping malls and a lot of new cafes and restaurants.
0: Now, you're talking about the congestion and the subway. You had the Olympics in 2004, Mm -hmm. and I I had the feeling that there was a lot of vision in the Olympics. They were investing in the infrastructure. Today, what are the benefits of having had the Olympics in the last decade?
2: Well, the benefits are the infrastructure, as you said.
0: So this world-class subway system.
2: For example, that. Also the new airport that we have for about 10 years now that is uh, outside of Athens.
0: And it's way out, but you can hop on that train.
2: Uh, you do have the train. Bam, and Then it takes 45 minutes to get to the center. We do have also a lot of other things that have to do with infrastructure like new roads, for example, or the new ring road around Athens and there is also a new highway around Athens. So a a ring road
0: would would keep people out of the center.
2: Exactly. And also the new highway, these two roads have made it possible that if you want to travel, then you don't have to travel through the center of Athens to get anywhere.
0: Are there regulations designed to discourage people from driving in the center of the city?
2: Yes, there are. One of the regulations is there is the so-called big ring and the so-called small ring. The small ring is the historical center of Athens. The big ring is the vassar area of the center. On every day, certain cars are allowed to drive through the center depending on the number uh, on the plates.
0: So the last digit on the license plate, would it be exactly. even and odd? Exactly.
2: Even and odd. And on the odd days, the odd numbers are allowed. On the even days, the even numbers are allowed. Ah. In earlier days, when things uh, economically were better, most of the families had two cars one with an ordinary plate and one with a, an even one. <laughs> now, of course, since things have gotten difficult, everybody has one. <laughs>
0: okay, so now they have one car, so you are limited to every other day um, to drive. You've got beautiful public transportation on days you can't um, bring your car into town.
2: Uh, there is also a bus lane.
0: And you've got the ring road to keep yeah. the needless traffic skirting the city instead of going through the middle. So mm-hmm. that seems like it's good urban planning. Now, when I stand on top of the Acropolis and I look out at this sprawling city, I always think... 150 years ago, Athens had a population of, what, 20,000 people or something like this. Um, a
2: bit more, but not a bit much. Of,
0: a small town. Yeah. And today, what, 4 million people in Greater Greece? It's
2: estimated about 4.5.
0: So you could see 40% of all the Greek people standing on top of the Acropolis. <laughs> Is that true? I mean, roughly. <laughs> uh,
2: yes, I'm living there, and, and it's definitely not an area that it's meant to be populated that densely. Definitely not.
0: It just goes forever. Is there still this migration to the city for young people looking for jobs and opportunity?
2: Hmm. That was the reason, but it was not just that. Uh, A lot of things have happened in Greece, and it has mainly to do with our history and the many wars, and also, for example, the last war with Turkey, which was a disaster for us. It was in 1922, and there was a forced exchange of population. Which means that everybody who was a Christian had to leave Turkey, everybody who was a Muslim had to leave Greece.
0: In the 1920s, yes, this is hopefully a bloodless ethnic cleansing basically if you're uh, back then yes back then. Yes. so Christians leave Turkey, Muslims leave Greece. all of a sudden you've got all these Greeks who lived in Turkey just going to Athens.
2: Exactly. And we had about 1.5 million coming to Greece. Most of them went to Athens. And of course they needed a place to stay, they needed a job, they needed something to eat, which was a a very difficult time for the government at that time. They used every kind of building, like the stadiums, like the theatres, like even the ships in the Port of Piraeus, to house them in. It was very, very difficult. So Athens never really got the chance to grow systematically with planning, never. In the 50s also, we had a big economical crisis. People came from all the villages all over the place to Athens to get a better job, in the 60s as well. And then in the 80s and 90s, job offers were better in Athens. If you are, um, let's say, a scientist, if you are into the fashion world, anything where you would like to have a career, you have to go to Athens. Right. So the city kept on growing and growing without planning. And then, of course, there is the other issue we have in the last 20 years, and that is illegal migration. We do have a lot of immigrants coming to Greece, most of them illegally, not all of them. And that is a very big problem because most of those people coming from all over Asia and Africa, mainly, and also the former Eastern Bloc of Europe, they look at Greece as a transit country to go further on to Europe, but most of them never make it.
0: So you have a lot of illegal immigrants we do. doing informal labor, Yeah, undocumented people.
2: Most of them, yes. Right.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Anastasia Gaitanu, who's a Greek tour guide getting us up to date on Athens. Anastasia, the big news uh, in the last year or so has been the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are not going to Greece because of the economic crisis. They think it's going to impact their experience as a tourist. What's your take on the economic crisis?
2: Oh, do come. (laughs) (laughs) Do come to Greece. Definitely, it does impact us a lot because uh, there are a lot of reductions in salaries and wages and prices tend to remain as they are, which is quite expensive for us, that is. But still, we're trying to make the best out of it. We're trying to help our government get us out.
0: When I was going to Greece, people were very nervous about the anarchists that were mm-hmm. having, you know, burning Starbucks mm-hmm. and having riots. My sense was it was done for publicity.
2: Well, definitely, that did bring a lot of publicity. And anarchists are nothing new to Greece. I and mean, they have been there for about 40 years.
0: Carly's on the line in Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania, with some thoughts on this. Carly, thanks for your call.
3: Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, well, uh, my question is along the lines of, of your discussion currently. Um, I'm interested in, you know, traveling with my two daughters, 17 and 20, but I'm concerned about the current political climate. And are there any recommendations for maybe safety or just that, that we should have maybe common sense things, If you know, any advice?
2: Well, hi. hi. The only thing you have to do is just to... Uh No, if there is going to be a demonstration. That's all. And the demonstrations are always in the center of Athens. And usually they are either when there is going to be a new law that's going to affect, of course, uh, what people are getting, wages and salaries, or if there is a a big celebration, a national holiday, like, for example, in November or in March, but I don't think that you're going to travel that time. But anyway, um, if there is a demonstration, just avoid the center of the square that's in front of the parliament. And that's all. Okay, Some, so
3: yeah, Square.
2: Exactly. Sometimes you see in the news, you know, fires and things burning and people yelling and screaming. And that's all in front of the parliament. If you are two streets behind that, most probably won't know that there is a demonstration going on.
3: Okay, uh, so tourists aren't targeted in any way. And
2: no, no. It was never about tourism, never.
0: Carly, I was just there uh, a couple months ago, very interested in this same concern because it's a reasonable concern that you and your daughter have. uh, By the nature of the news, if there's 100 people uh, yelling and screaming and jumping on cars, they're going to be headlines, you know. And uh, I understand there's a small community of anarchists in a neighborhood called Exarchia. And these are bohemian, anarchist, hippie kind of people that... They just love to get on their scooters and go downtown whenever there's a demonstration. So let's say the teachers are demonstrating in front of the parliament building. Fifty anarchists will go down there and, and burn a Starbucks and roll over a car, and all of a sudden, they steal the headlines. And uh, it's easy to overreact to that. But really, from my, point, my experience, it was something exactly as Anastasia said. You could be two blocks away and, and not know it's happening. So I think it's a shame when you consider it I think the number one source of foreign revenue uh, for Greece is tourism. It's a huge employer. It is. For people to overreact, if they're dreaming of going to Greece, don't let, if it bleeds, it leads, kind of journalism get the best of you. Greece is a beautiful place to go. Now more than ever, I think it makes sense to to get to know Greece. So have a good time on your trip, Carly. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Athens with Anastasia Gaetano, who joins us right here in our studio. Luann's on the phone in Ravenna, Ohio. Luann, thanks for your call.
5: Hi. Uh, Yes, I I tried to um, go there last year, and I've always wanted to, and I'm thinking about going in September with a week in Santorini, but my trip to Athens would be by myself, and I'm looking for possibly inexpensive housing so that I can visit the Acropolis. I was a potter. I loved the Greek pottery. I loved the Greek mythology, and I'd like to spend a week there meandering and enjoying the city. (laughs) And I'm wondering if that is a better time to be there in late September, uh, early October, and what you might suggest for a single woman traveling alone.
2: (laughs) Well, there are a lot of things that you can do in Athens. Definitely there are a lot of different museums and a lot of different areas that you should go, even if you are a woman traveling alone. There are only two or three areas you should avoid, no matter if you travel alone or not. But there is no problem in going out even in the night. The areas you should avoid are, one of them is Exarchia, which is the area where the anarchists go, although now there have been some changes, and it's considered to be quite safe, but you never know. Exarchia is an area that is um, very famous among young people. There are a lot of bars there, a lot of cafes, a lot of young people and young people who believe that they can make a difference because when you're young, that's what you believe, (laughs) and later on you see (laughs) But uh, oh. this is the place where they go. Uh, another place you should go is a so-called city that is uh, next to Monastiraki. Both of them are considered to be the old part of Athens. And
0: I'll spell that for you there. That's P-S-Y-R-R-I. And this is really the emerging cute nightlife area where you find all sorts of beautiful little cafes and pubs and people out oh, that's strolling. wonderful. Wow. It is just incredible there. Luana, also, I want to remind you, you're asking about cheap accommodations. I don't know about the B&B situation. I don't think that's very well developed in no, Athens. No, not So really. I would not bother with that, but I'm just looking through the listings of the hotels that I recommend in the Plaka area. Typically, a single room would cost you 50 or 60 euros. Yeah, so right. you're, you're talking $70 for a single downtown in Athens. So, you know, if you can afford that, you're set up very comfortably within a 10-minute walk of almost everything you want to see.
5: And good public transportation. Yeah.
0: And, and good taxis, too. I think Athens is a great taxi town, so just hop in taxis. If your time's worth anything, taxis are a budget mm-hmm. tip in Athens. Thanks for your call, Luann.
5: You're welcome. I look forward to hearing the rest of the program. <laughs> Let
0: us know how your trip goes. Have a okay. good time. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. I've got to ask you about the new Acropolis Museum. How do you feel as a Greek taking groups into the Acropolis Museum.
2: Very proud. (laughs) Why? Well, it's finally a world-class museum. I think there has been a lot of thought put into the realization of the building because it is related to the Acropolis since everything you see in it comes from the Acropolis Hill. It is next to the Acropolis and it has a lot of glass windows all around, big glass windows so that you have always a view to the Acropolis. And the last uh, floor is turned a bit uh, compared to the rest of the building, and it is in a perfect alignment with the Parthenon. The Parthenon is the main monument of the Acropolis. So
0: for our listeners, so they can envision this, on the hilltop you've got the Acropolis and the remains of the majestic Parthenon, and then at the base of the cliff you've got this state-of-the-art museum, one of the best museums Mm -hmm. in Europe now, several stories, just gorgeous displays of all this Greek classical art, and at the top, the top floor is tilted so it is in perfect alignment with what it is reproducing. Exactly. And you're waiting for those Elgin marbles to be sent back from London.
2: Well, to be completely honest, we like not to call them the Elgin marbles in favor of the thief, if I may say so. (laughs) We like to call them the Parthenon marbles. But yes, we do hope that at some point they will come back home Uh, although I do know that this is a very difficult situation and if I were in the shoes of the English, I most probably wouldn't want to give them myself as well.
0: (laughs) But the English always said, well, Athens, you don't have a suitable place for the marbles. Now they cannot Mm. say that anymore because there is certainly a suitable place. But I think we've got to acknowledge that if the English had to give back their treasures to the Greeks, then every other society would demand their treasures back too, and there'd be nothing left in the British Museum.
2: I suppose they would demand that back, too. But, <laughs> of course, it also has to do of how they got to them. Yeah. And some things were really bought, and they got them in a legal way, and mm-hmm. some they didn't, and ours they did not.
0: And the good news is there are some impressive statues and pieces of art, remaining in Athens, and now they're beautifully displayed in the wonderful new Acropolis Museum. This Acropolis Museum, to me, suddenly makes the National Museum of Archaeology no longer an essential site. I mean, if you got to choose one or the other on a quick visit, hmm. that Acropolis Museum is really very convenient and and quite good.
2: If it would have been a a quick visit, yes, definitely that Mm -hmm. because, of course, uh, an essential part of a quick Mm -hmm. visit is the Acropolis itself. So the Acropolis, the new Acropolis Museum is making the whole impression of the Acropolis a whole. So you have to see that.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been dreaming about Athens with Anastasia Gaetanu. Anastasia, you're traveling in the United States right now. When you get back to Greece, what's the first piece of food that you're going to be homesick to have?
2: Oh, (laughs) that's a good question. Well, I suppose it will be stuffed tomatoes with rice and minced meat.
0: Nice. Well, I hope you enjoy your trip around the United States, and then I hope you get your (laughs) stuffed tomatoes when you get home. Thanks so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. Willie Weir has found that the time it takes to travel by bicycle gets him close to the kindness of everyday people in the places he visits. And it lets him
4: stock up on memorable travel experiences. Here's another dispatch from his two-wheeled travels. Madrid, Spain is a busy metropolis of around three and a half million people. It is filled with the chaos of traffic and humanity like any big city. But walk through one of the nine entryways into Plaza Mayor and the world changes. There are moments as a traveler when you find yourself in a place that feels just right. A place where your heart soars, where tension melts from your body and a smile of satisfaction plants itself on your face. These moments often occur for me in parks and reserves where nature is the architect. But every once in a while, a city provides such a venue. Plaza Mayor is one of those venues. In the heart of the city, it is approximately 300 by 400 feet of open space surrounded by three-story residential buildings. To give you an idea, that's twice the footage of a football field. Once inside, the chaos of the city melts away. The edge of the plaza is lined with tables set up by restaurants. Diners sit, talking and laughing, sipping wine and feasting on local cuisine. The rest of the plaza is wide open space, with the exception of the bronze statue of King Philip III in the center. Kids run and play, couples and families stroll, students gather sitting on the cobblestones in small circles. Musicians provide their own magic to the atmosphere. Life may not always be good outside the plaza, but for the time being, Inside, it is good. The truly great cities provide these civic places. I wonder where these spaces are in my city. In the busyness of downtown Seattle, is there such a place where people can escape the noise, traffic, and intensity of the city? Do our libraries and parks fill that need? Seattle Art Museum, Sculpture Park, the Seattle Center, Westlake Center? I'm not an architect or a city planner, but in my humble traveler's opinion, every city needs. It's Plaza Mayor.
0: Willie Weir's website is willieweird.com. That's spelled W-E-I-R. His latest book of travel essays and observations is called Travels with Willie. So far today, we've learned about the architectural wonders of Germany's Potsdam as well as the changes in Athens that have made this ancient city much more approachable for modern-day visitors. Tell us about your favorite cities. Let's hear where you've been traveling. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. We're checking in with you, our listeners, about your favorite cities on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877 333 7425. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And you can post a few lines about your favorite city in the radio message board. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Elizabeth's on the line in Sacramento, California. Elizabeth, we're talking about favorite cities in the world. Uh, right. What would you recommend?
3: it's hard rick but i'm going to have to say dublin dublin yep the irish people it's such a beautiful place it really is
0: and and why do you like dublin
3: well you know i went there um as a woman by myself i rented a car and i drove around for a week and i felt so safe you know i i was having a ball in this pub one night watching all the dancing and stuff and I got out at about 12 midnight, and I walked back to the hotel, hmm. and I never felt threatened. I never felt like you know, anyone was going to do me harm.
0: You know, I understand what you're saying, and we went there with our kids once when our kids were teenagers, and I'll tell you, it was a great place for a family vacation with teenagers because the kids could be out and about and, and all the crazy sort of nightlife going on, and I felt it was a big city, it was a wonderful urban scene, but I felt it was very safe.
3: Yeah, it, yeah. And I just love striking up a conversation with, like, crossing the street. The Irish people are so friendly, uh, you know, and I'd feel, like, kind of bad, like I had to end the conversation, you know, eventually.
0: <laughs> you know, they keep messing up my itinerary. I think I've think i got this long list of things to do, and I end up talking the day away with just these wonderful people.
3: <laughs> it's true. And, like, in the pub, too, I just felt like, um, I don't know, people strike up conversations with you and... They say, well, I'm treating you to a pint. You know, things like that.
0: Yeah. You know, one reason why I really like Ireland? I get the sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language.
3: (laughs) Yes, sure. And Scottish, sometimes I cannot understand them with the really strong, you know, accents they have. But
0: the the Irish, they've got this wonderful brogue, and they love to talk. And uh, it's, it's just so charming. I mean, I can be involved in a conversation with somebody, and I can remember just chatting away and... And the sun goes down and it gets dark, and we we forget to even to turn on the lights. We're sitting there in oh, the dark true. talking. It's they just love to share and get into this wonderful art of conversation. Hey, you enjoyed Dublin. Did you get outside of Dublin and find any smaller towns that you liked in Ireland?
3: I did. Yeah, Rick. I did. I drove some of those roads. They're a little scary because there's like no um, shoulder. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, You know, but I did them, and I sometimes I had to make the sign of the cross while I was driving. But um, <laughs> I ended up in this little town called Yano. Maybe, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But that's, that's where that's they, on
0: the southeast coast of Ireland.
3: Yes, and they filmed Moby Dick back in the 19... 1954, 53, I'm oh, not
0: okay. sure. Okay, wow.
3: But it was nice. I love that town.
0: Yeah, and why did you like it?
3: Well, you know, you might say, oh, Liz, you were there on a slow day. I mean, it was, you know, Sunday morning, everyone's in church. This little uh, cafe coffee shop was open. Of course, I was talking with everyone, having a ball reading the different newspapers, they're, they're so literate. There's so many uh-huh. newspapers. I love that. Oh, yeah. And they know so much about our country. Yeah. They know celebrities. there just like we know. You know what I mean? Sure.
0: They, they know our culture pretty well. The nice thing about Ireland, of course, we have this massive culture. Ireland's got, what, three or four million people, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, somebody who's a, a big shot in Dublin on, on their TV, you'll see him in a pub in a town like... Uh, Yonel the next day, and it's just like, oh yeah, he was just on TV in Dublin, and now he's having a pint with you.
3: Yeah. Well, I remember I just briefly had time to watch TV, but one time I was watching something. It was like a game show, and they had a woman on there, and this nice man, oh, charisma and all that, and he goes, well, tell me, love, you mean you've never been off the island, you've never been out of Ireland, and then, you know, it was just so wonderful, and I actually felt (laughs) I traveled a lot, but I thought to myself, I've been to Ireland, I'm kind of mad because I don't want to go anywhere else. I just want to keep going back and exploring different cities.
0: And where else can you sit down and and meet a charming stranger who says, now tell me, love? (laughs) No, it's true. That's (laughs) how
3: they talk to you. And then you start talking like that with them and you feel (laughs) comfortable.
0: After a week in Ireland, I pick up an Irish accent and I start to take on these wonderful (laughs) characters. I feel like I'm a better person after a little time in Ireland because I'm really focused in on the the simple joys of just uh, appreciating the people around you.
3: And the beautiful Book of Kells, I remember that. Mm. I still remember the vivid blue, Mm. the vivid gold, you know.
0: That uh, Book of Kells, by the way, one of the cultural treasures of Western civilization, it's in Dublin in a beautiful museum at Trinity College, isn't it?
3: Yes, and really? they said they turn the page every day. So. You get to
0: see one page every. Yeah. They turn the page, and uh, it's just a beautiful um, example of the high culture in Ireland when the rest of Europe was basically rutting in the mud, you know. I mean, it, true, that was really the, the high point where people were literate and uh, a little more sophisticated. Elizabeth from Sacramento, California, thanks for your call.
3: Oh, no problem. I'll do it again someday. All
0: right. <laughs> Happy travels, okay. and maybe I'll see Thank you, in, you. Uh, in Yonel sometime on a quiet you Sunday morning. You know you will. Okay, take care. <laughs> All right, bye.
3: Bye.
0: And Ollie's on the phone in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Ollie, thanks for your call.
6: Well, Rick, I gotta tell you first, you you're one of my favorite people in all the world. Really? I, well I I admire you and your family for your travels. I really do.
0: Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your <laughs> travels. What what have you enjoyed in your travels? Oh
6: my goodness. Thirteen years in Europe and my Favorite city, and I know you've been there is Garmisch-Partenkirchen.
0: Now this is uh, on the foothills of the Alps. This is a little resort uh, town yeah, in the south they're... of Germany, in Bavaria.
6: South of Munich, uh, it's about 40 miles, and it's Garmisch, and it used to be garmisch partenkirchen now they just call it Garmisch.
0: That used to be a, a big hangout for American uh, troops that were stationed in southern Germany.
6: Uh, yeah, they had a lot of Air Force, uh, Armed Forces Recreation Center hotels, and now, now they only have one called the Edelweiss, and it is gorgeous. It's a half hour from Innsbruck, Austria. You're right next to the Swiss border, and you probably know the highest point in Germany is called the Zugspitze. It's 237 feet short of being 10,000 feet up.
0: Yeah, let's call it 10,000 feet. That's pretty exciting.
6: (laughs) (laughs) And and when you're on top, you can walk over into Austria, have maybe a little little meal or drink, and walk back.
0: I love that. That's one of my goofy (laughs) treats, is to be on top of the Zugspitz, and I really Uh feel like I'm the highest guy in Germany right now. And you can have one foot in Germany and one foot in Austria, enjoying a 360-degree view, and half of that view is the Alps stretching before you like a symphony. It's just incredible.
6: Absolutely. It's gorgeous. Like I guess I spent nine years in Germany and four years in the Netherlands.
0: In what capacity were you in Germany?
6: Uh, I was in the Air Force for 22 years. So
0: you were stationed down there in southern Germany?
6: Yeah, I was stationed uh, the nine years in Germany at Ramstein, Kaiserslautern and then Simbach Air Base, and then Allied Forces Central Europe. I was in NATO nine years. Believe it or not, which I love primarily in my whole tenure was... I had 138 people working for me from seven different nations, and my God, that was probably the best assignment I had in the entire Air Force.
0: That, but that was oh, very you gratifying.
6: Learned, you learn the different cultures, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. You know, but you know what? The main thing I found that in all my life, if nothing else, regardless of like yourself, you're well-traveled. Regardless of where you go, I don't care what country, what city, what. It all depends how do you present yourself. If you, if you go with a positive attitude, a smile, try to learn a few words of language, you will do fine.
0: I think those are words of wisdom, Ollie. Thanks, oh, thanks geez, so much.
6: Ab- Absolutely, you will do fine. And I bet with yeah. that
0: attitude, you made a lot of friends in Germany over nine years.
6: <laughs> in, in fact, one particular friend, his name was Herbert Mueller. He lived in a little village called Machenbach, which is right outside of Ramstein Air Base. Yeah. If I called him right now, Rick, and I said, Herb, I have a problem. He goes to Frankfurt. He gets on the first plane out, and he comes over. And I would do the same thing. If he called me right now and said I got a problem, I'm I'm going
0: now. Isn't that a beautiful thing, Ollie from Goldsboro, yes. North Carolina? Thanks for your call.
6: Oh, uh, you're quite welcome. Take care of yourself.
0: Thanks, Ollie. Bye now. Uh, bye bye. Deb in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, emails us, and she writes, "It seems trite, but Paris continues to amaze me after many trips. Always a new neighborhood to explore, a beautiful corner previously undiscovered." We've recently enjoyed trips closer to the Peripherie and Parc Montsouris, visits to the Street of Music, Rue du Rome, and much more. So Deb is visiting Paris many times, and she's staying away from the center, out towards the periphery. That's the circular ring road, uh, the ring freeway that goes around Paris so that you don't have to drive through the middle. That's one thing that any connoisseur of France learns is Paris has got to be the capital of Europe, and you can never run out of great reasons to go back to that great city of light. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Joe's on the phone in Chicago. Joe, thanks for your call.
7: One of my most uh, experiences, and I didn't even plan on going to this place, was in Marseille in France. Uh, I was in the Côte d'Azur in the south of France, you know, during the Nice, the Monaco, the Cannes. And then I wanted to stop somewhere before I went to Barcelona, and I thought, well, I'll stop in Marseille. But a lot of French tourists that I was meeting while I was traveling were telling me, well, oh, don't go to Marseille because it's a very dangerous place. They were telling me the most dangerous city in France. And I went there, and I absolutely loved it. So I went to the viewport, and um, everybody was telling me to try this, the world famous bouillabaisse. And I noticed there was all these different prices, different price range, and different restaurants claiming that they're the best and they're the original. And I know that the bouillabaisse has. Um, you know, several specific ingredients, especially regarding the seafood and the way you eat it also with the with the bread crumbs and the garlic. But uh, tell me, in your experiences, what do you recommend for a travel that goes to Marseille? Because there's so many different places you can get the bouillabaisse base
0: at. Well, you know, what I recommend in Marseille is simply to walk down the main boulevard, what's it called, Cannabir, I think, and then get into the Arab quarters. The Arab markets in Marseille are just so fragrant and colorful. And that's a vivid memory right there. And it reminds me, of the French colonial experience and the current situation that France is dealing with with a big immigrant population and how to properly uh, assimilate them into their culture and how to deal with the, you know, economic uh, issues and so on, just like in our country, we're dealing with uh, immigrant labor issues. And when you go to Marseille, you're finding, you know, a town that is, you could call it the second city of France, but, of course, very few tourists go there. It's a rough-and-tumble city. It's a Mediterranean port, and when you do go there, you find a little better dose of reality than you'll find in other towns, and it is, of course, dangerous if you are careless, but I think if you use common sense, it's a wonderful stop, and, of course, you've got the Vauxport, the old port, surrounded by colorful ramshackle kind of buildings and beautiful people-friendly squares. But for me, most vivid is going through that market. I feel like I'm in in the north of Africa, in Morocco or something like that, and there's a sort of a special love of life that's more North African rather than European that I think combines nicely with the French uh, passion and expertise at living well, and it sort of carbonates your experience, I'd say.
7: Rick, I think you're um, dead on point with that. I mean, I've never been to a North African county country myself but uh, being in Marseille is probably the closest experience I think for me to go into some place like Morocco or Algeria
0: rather than going to a famous restaurant and having a bouillabaisse that big seafood soup I would take that money and go into the uh, Arabic quarter of Marseille there and uh, have a party with 10 people <laughs> you know you could for the same money you could uh, the, the drinks are on you uh, that's quite expensive to get a bouillabaisse and you can go into that the Arab quarter of Marseille there and really have a vivid experience without spending very much money at all I think Great advice. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for your call.
3: Thank you
7: very much, Rick. Keep on doing the great work.
0: Okay, happy travels. And Sarah's on the phone in Fallbrook, California. Sarah, thanks for your call.
5: Oh, you're welcome. My husband was reading a financial newsletter, a reputable one that he trusts, and here's an article about an educational program for Anglos that involves Spaniards. I read the article, and he said, "Uh, what do you think? I said, oh, let's do this. Well, I don't think he expected me to go online immediately and apply, but I did. What I applied to was a place called Vaughntown. Vaughntown is run by Richard Vaughn. Uh, he's an American. He's in Madrid. They're actually English immersion programs for Spaniards, and they're run in Spain. He's been doing this, I think, since around 2000. If you are an Anglo-meaning American, or any other nation that speaks English as the primary language, you can qualify to go to Vaughntown. You merely sign up online, tell them about yourself, and if you are accepted, you go. And it is the most budget-conscious travel we've ever seen because it only costs you the price of airline tickets to Madrid. That's it. You are there for six days as their guests. They pay for all your accommodations, your meals, even wine. You stay at a four-star resort at one of their locations outside of Madrid. We stayed in Guerreros, which is near Barco de Avila. It was an absolutely gorgeous hotel.
0: So, if you speak English as a native language, yes. there's this immersion program for Spaniards in Correct. a resort outside of Madrid called right. Vaughn Town. That's and right. you can go there, and they use you as sort of the, you can talk to this English-speaking person, to the Spaniards, and all you got to do is be there and be social and talk to these people, and you get to stay there with food and wine and accommodations all included. They don't pay you, but you get to have, a, in a sense, a Spanish vacation in a resort outside of Madrid, get to know and make friends with a lot of Spaniards and help them learn English. You got it. Holy cow. Isn't is, that easy? Now, this is Vaughan Town, and we'll put the uh, information about it on our website, or people could Google it, but it's V-A-U-G-H-A-N uh-huh. Town. Okay.
5: Town. One of the things that we didn't anticipate is you expect, because you're going to be speaking your own language, that things are going to be pretty much the way hmm. you expect them to be at home. Well, it's not the case. The days were very long, because the Spaniards don't eat dinner until 9 p.m. And our days would start at 9 a.m. with breakfast. And there's a siesta from 3 to 5 in the afternoon.
0: But now, this is a a six-day program. Are you just sitting in this resort talking to these people, or do they have activities where you They have
5: activities. Oh, no, the activities are amazing. By the way, they have a like amount of Spaniards as Anglos. I think there were 29 Anglos and 29 Spaniards. So the program's kind of big. There were people there from Belgium and Canada, the U.K. and from Australia and New Zealand, as well as the U.S. And you know, the interesting thing to us is that during Franco's regime, no foreign language was taught in the Spanish schools. The Spaniards were not allowed to learn another language in their school systems. So as these young, and sometimes not so young, Spaniards approach The World Market for Business, Hmm. they find that English now is the language of business, and they're not prepared.
0: And they're behind.
5: That's right. The youngest Spaniard in our group was 24, and the oldest one was 51.
0: You know, I think that's why they have a heritage of having their movies dubbed instead of uh, uh, subtitled.
5: (laughs) You're probably right.
0: You know, because Spain, I think, is notorious for having all the movies dubbed into Spanish. Because, see, I didn't
5: know that, but you might be right. Franco,
0: it goes back to Franco, I believe. So, well, this is very interesting, and you must have made some friends out of this experience. Well,
5: we did, and the interesting thing about that part of it, which we didn't expect, is that we became so close with these people in this very short period of time because you're really together constantly. We exchanged email addresses and such, and when we returned, we emailed a few people that we formed a special bond with. And one young man, the 24-year-old, was a recent uh, graduate of mechanical engineering in Madrid. Uh, he emailed and he said, I, I'm looking for a job and I'm having a hard time. Nobody's hiring until September. I think I'll come to California to improve my English and learn to surf.
0: And learn to surf, okay.
5: Uh, as it turned out, we hosted him, and it was an amazing experience for all of us. One of the things that the person kind of in charge of our group said to us, he said, you will learn more about Spain in these six days than you will ever learn any other way. And of course, we didn't get to see much of the countryside except oh, where we were. I would
0: trade that away for the experience you had. Oh, in a absolutely.
5: Yeah. The people in our group... Um, this young mechanical engineer there were two or three lawyers there was a neurosurgeon the sales manager for Mercedes-Benz so we got this whole spectrum of cultural yeah so um, these
0: are are engaged professional people trying to pick up the English by uh, this intense program Sarah we've got to run but that's been a fascinating report and thank you so much
5: oh you're welcome Rick nice to talk to you okay
0: happy travels
5: (laughs) bye bye
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the BBC in London. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've arranged many of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves
0: travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Each year Rick Steves tour guides take free spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year you can choose from 3 dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul. Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.